Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for believers, doubters and everyone in between. And uh, yeah, we're well into the new year now, though it's uh, I feel like I'm just about ramping up and getting back into it. I had a weird thing last night, actually, Ben, not, not particularly weird, but it was quite stormy last night. I don't know if you it heard it. It was stormy, yeah. yeah. I, and I got up to go to the loo in the middle of the night, and on the way back I looked out the window and it was, you know, the rain was coming down. It was slightly misty, uh, and right outside our house we've got this huge oak tree, and I was looking at it and it just, just reminded me of that scene in Poltergeist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, where the tree just kind of comes to life and comes through the window. I slightly wigged myself out for about 20 seconds and went, just go back to bed, just go back to bed. I don't if you've ever watched Hereditary, getting up to go to the toilet in the middle of the night after you've watched that is a very bad idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I normally don't get spooked, but it was weird just looking out the window going, that thing is just like the tree in Poltergeist. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy, but um, I've been having lots of crazy dreams, largely because we're still eating the rest of the Christmas cheese. <laughs> I opened the fridge this morning to make a cup of tea before coming over here, and all I can smell is cheese in that fridge. It's becoming... I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm gonna just have to eat it all in one cheesy lump and then be done with it. You reminds me of Samuel Pepys. You're just gonna bury it in the back garden. Didn't he do that with his? I was parmesan, a parmesan, yeah. yeah, during the fire of London. So yeah, maybe you should do that. I don't blame him. I do love parmesan. <laughs> yeah. I do love parmesan. But uh, I actually Samuel Pepys and the fire of London. Is I'm gonna take that as a segue. segue. Yeah, I'll take it as a segue because I learned something really interesting this week which started my little journey now quite a lot of the time we've been talking about how you can't necessarily trust your own eyes maybe or trust somebody else's eyes but i thought you could always trust a map and very specifically the a to z Uh, i I used to rely on the a to z yeah i remember it well i'm sure there's a to z's in other cities but there, you don't really have a chance of nav- navigating London, particularly in a car, unless you've either got sat-nav or an A to Z. Yeah. But the A to Z has lots of different uh, elements to it which are completely fictional. In 2005, there were 100 fictional streets. Deliberately? Deliberately. Wow. And there's a very good reason for it, which had never occurred to me. It's impossible to copyright protect... Uh, a work of fact. Right. Which means that anybody could have reproduced the London A to Z, even if they didn't reproduce the artwork. But they protect it because it is, in fact, a work of fiction. Ah, that's really interesting. Isn't it? I never it? knew that. No. So, so fake... So then they know if somebody had just copied it and reproduced it, they'd also copy the errors so they'd know it was a reproduction of their work. That's amazing. They would know it was a reproduction of their work, but also... Um, they would have to work quite hard to be able to pull out the works of fiction to turn it into a work of fact. Right. And, I, you know, I don't think they really need to do it anymore because London is so well mapped. I mean, Google yeah. and such, but it still protects them. Um, my favourite one, there is um, they added a ski slope um, <laughs> just next to a city farm. So it doesn't actually affect the way you navigate around right. there. It's actually a park, but it's a ski slope. Right. And I thought, isn't that interesting that... Something that we were, you know, rely on and hold as a truth actually isn't real. Right. And so I then looked at maps as a whole 
and I discovered this really very beautiful book called The Phantom Atlas, The Greatest Myths, Lies and Blunders on Maps, uh, published in 2016 by an author called Edward Brooke Hitching. And all of the things that we have been talking about, those kind of... um, when we talk about wild stories coming in from various parts of the world, like explorers, remember we did that thing about explorers talking about man-eating trees? Yeah, and plants stuff, yeah. Yeah. The, so some of those stories got translated into maps and were considered to be factually accurate right. up until relatively recent times. So I'll take you through a few of my favourite stories here because... They are fascinating, and some of them are due to avarice and greed. And they also relate to why we believe, um, or why sailors believed in sea monsters, but we'll come on to that. Okay. So my, the first one that really caught my eye was the, in some maps, it was drawn that Australia had an inland sea. Right. So when we first colonised Australia... We obviously got to the shore and thought, blimey, that middle's a little bit... That's going to be difficult. And obviously there's expeditions set off there. Um, And this one particular caused this drawing of the inland sea. So I'll just sort of relate to you the way that Edward tells the story. And it's about an expedition that started 42 years after the British First Fleet arrived and obviously they landed at Botany Bay, what we call Botany Net Bay now, and that turned into um, a European colony at Port Jackson as well. So we've kind of got that little bit of Australia there. And as we know, this was a penal territory. Um, But the British, of course, we were keen to push deeper into the unmapped interior and get a sense of the potential for future not only settlement, but investment. Don't forget, there's money men here because yeah. there could be cattle grazing, there could be arable farming, pastoral farming, all sorts. They knew from experience that following rivers inland usually led to mountains, river systems and fertile land. That just makes sense. That's what we know yep. from wherever we lived. And so it was assumed that the same topographic logic could be applied to Australia. So there was this idea that got passed around that there was a rich and he describes it as they talked about a rich verdant paradise in the middle of australia and there is a writer that he quotes called thomas j maslin uh, in a book called the friend of australia and he says the plan here offered is a practical scheme and not a vain theory which could not be put into practice and it will serve equally well as a guide and book of reference to numerous or a small party of explorers. So Maslin is a retired officer of the East India Company, and he wrote his book to encourage colonial expansion efforts. And in it, he provides detailed instructions for how to conduct surveys and inland exploration. And um, by the way, for the latter, he uh, advocates the use of camels, just as a side, yeah. a side note. Can't go wrong with a camel. You can't go wrong with a camel. <laughs> uh, camel lights are my favourite. Um, it seemed most unlikely to Europeans that a country the size of Australia would exist without the same abundant water systems of other continents. Maslin, therefore, used his book to exhibit his ag- educated guess of a water-rich Australian interior. 
Today, the Friend of Australia is considered the ultimate monument to speculative geography. <laughs> I love that phrase, <laughs> yeah, speculative, speculative geography. <laughs> the map um, that is uh, emanates from this, it's very difficult because this is obviously an audio medium, but you will just have to imagine that it's a map of Australia and to sort of the north, northwest of it, Someone has just basically drawn a big C. Right. That's basically what it is. A big C in the middle of Australia. And, and uh, I guess there probably wasn't this detail. They're saying it was a saltwater sea, or is it more like a giant lake? Or could no, be either. Well, the, the idea is that the the, um, the proposed and <laughs> speculative mountains would flow water, fresh water, right. into an inland sea. Yeah. Like a, a big old lock, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. But because of, they sort of scaled it up because of the size of Australia. Yeah. And then from that rivers would emerge down to the sea so what he's saying is take your camels up there and you know you will find this <laughs> fill, fill this their land. hubs um well so so the river network that is drawn on the map is like really elaborate and um it's described in the book as a generous found uh, fantasy crowned by a great lake the size of a small sea that is placed plumb in the desolate center of what is known as the Simpson desert so uh, uh, if we, I mean, you may get onto it in a bit more detail, but if we go into motivations, so it seems like one of the motivations was just an assumption that this is how things work, so there must be one. Yeah. Was there a more kind of, I don't know if sinister is the right word, ulterior motive that kind of build it and they will come type of thing if we say there's a lake in the middle of Australia, at least more explorers will go and search. Was it was that part of the motivation? Well, it seems like what you had was um, people going, it must be true. That finds its way into maps because people are just guessing what the interior looks like. Right. That then gets pushed as a, why aren't you doing it? And then from that money starts funding these private expeditions. Right. So there's a guy called Charles Sturt, and he describes himself really as a water hunter. That's what right. he... That, that's what his exhibition... Eh, expedition? Exhibition? Not an exhibition. It's an expedition. <laughs> Do water hunters go, I got it, and then it just slipped through my hands. <laughs> his enthusiasm dried up. Sorry. Um, he led some expeditions into the centre of Australia in 1829-1830. And he had become obsessed that there was a western flowing waterway that would lead him to a giant inland sea. And that is very similar to the map in the um, in the book. Right. Like, the people just kept redrawing it in different ways. But um, as you can imagine, he discovered that, uh, in fact, they were just tributaries. What he could see as rivers were just tributaries to the Murray, which is Australia's longest river. Right. And by the middle of the 19th century, people had given up on this idea. But there was, you know, people who privately fund these um, expeditions, they're hoping that they will find water because with that becomes economic growth. Yeah. And they can then obviously control the land. And you could imagine, you know, people wanting, like I said cattle that sort of thing that's that's where they saw the money can you imagine the disappointment for the explorers you know you've been traveling for weeks and weeks your camels are just on their last padded legs 
And you go, look, we're nearly there. I've seen it on the map. We're nearly to the big inland lake. And it just never comes. That must be so, oh. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's massively disappointing. And um, presumably, I mean, we're not going to cover it here, but lots of people must have lost their lives. I was thinking that there must have been people who go, like, we're, we're dependent on finding that water to survive and it never even existed. That's just bonkers, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But um, it sort of tells you a little bit about the... Uh, uh, I guess there's a conceit there, isn't there? It's kind of like, yeah. well, it must be true. If we've seen it here, it must be true. So I'm going to draw it on a map and make it true. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> wow. I mean, it doesn't paint a brilliant picture of the British, really. Yeah. We we find this brilliant land, which, by the way, other people already live on. We turn it into a prison and then go, sod it, there must be a sea here. I mean... Well, when we did the episode, or you did the episode on those kind of carnivorous, legendary plants, there was that one plant where it was quite a massive thing that uh, tribes would sacrifice people to, and they watched someone being eaten alive by this plant. And we were going, God, you know, the lengths that people will go to to kind of fund an expedition. This is a whole novel level. Let's just create a massive freshwater area in the middle of Australia that doesn't exist. Yeah, That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. But people, people became convinced because once you have it in print and once a yeah. cartographer commits it to a map... Yeah. Um, you sort of go, well, it must be true. Yeah. And so one person's fantasy becomes another person's, um, I guess, record of uh, fact to investigate. And I'm assuming some of these original maps still exist with water in the middle of Australia? They, yeah, they do, yeah. God, yeah. They must be worth a few bob. The now. reproductions in this book are stunning. Wow. Um, it's definitely worth because maps are beautiful, aren't they? To mm. look at, you know, those, those especially those older maps where I don't know. There's just something romantic about them. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it is. Um, I mean, absolutely. Buy the book and wonder at them, or you can also do a look inside on Amazon, and you'll see <laughs> you'll, <laughs> you'll see, see a couple. That. You'll see a couple. But it is is definitely a book to own in print rather than um, get a Kindle version of. Right. But there's um, and there's another one that took my eye, and I'd heard of this. It never, I didn't even realise myself that it was fictional. Have you heard of Bradley Land? No. <laughs> it's not Bradley Walsh. <laughs> it's, it's theme Ooh, park. <laughs> Bra Bra Bradley Land. Nice to visit. You wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> Come to Bradley Land. <laughs> it's just shaped like a giant Bradley Walsh. If you don't know who Bradley Walsh is, I do apologise. Yeah. But um, he's yeah for for our non-British uh, listeners, he's a, a comedian and game show host. And in Doctor Who, I think. Oh, yes, he was an actor as well, yes. He yeah. was in Doctor Who for a while, yeah. Well, he tells the story of Bradley Land. <laughs> I'm not just thinking... <laughs> you just made me think it's Bradley Walsh telling this story, but it's not. <laughs> no, <laughs> Listeners, forget Bradley Walsh. We never mentioned Bradley him. Walsh goes throughout this part of Bradley, it. <laughs> Bradley Land is nothing to do with Bradley Walsh. <laughs> Let's restart. <laughs> I can't get out of my head now. No, I know. Um... 
not Bradley Walsh tells tells the story which I precede um, that in the spring of 1908, the American surgeon and explorer Frederick Albert Cook left the Greenland box house he had built upon arriving in the country the summer before and embarked on a mission to become the first to reach the North Pole. As he crossed South, uh, Smith Sound to Ellesmere Island, he took 10 Inuit helpers, 11 sledges and 105 dogs. And when I first read that... 105 dogs? He really oh, loved dogs. No, to tow the sledge. Oh, OK. <laughs> I know. No. I know. Come on. <laughs> It'll be fun. <laughs> We're going to have a dog show where we get there. <laughs> oh, they were, those, all those excited dogs who thought we'd just go for a nice little walk and they end up like <laughs> trudging to the North Pole in a blizzard. <laughs> they finally reached Cape Thomas Hubbard, located at the northernmost tip of Axel Heiberg Island in the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. I have been practising these pronunciations. Very good. Very very smooth. Keck... (laughs) 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 Oh, we jinxed it. We jinxed it. (laughs) Cook led his group out through the slicing winds as they trudged across the frozen polar sea. Within three days, only two of his Inuit companions remained by his side. They then set off for the North Pole, and all three men vanished. For a year, nothing was heard, and it was assumed the four had met with disaster. Until, in April 1909, they discovered they'd had a massive dog show with Bradley Walsh. No, 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 they did He was joking. No, he wasn't. Um, uh, and then, in April 1909, Cook suddenly reappeared. I love that idea. Suddenly. Ta-da. Wow. What, what about the dogs? I think the dogs... I don't think... I was worried about the dogs, but I don't think that he would have reappeared without them because he wouldn't have been able to to move, no. Upon his return uh, to Greenland, he told his story. He claimed to have reached Devon Island in the archipelago, and it's the largest uninhabited island on Earth, by the way. He claims to have sighted a new landmass, which he called Bradley Land. (laughs) Of course he did. This is why... I'm going to tell you why it's called Bradley Land. The naming was in tribute to John R. Bradley, who was a wealthy big game hunter who had funded the Cook expedition. I don't know why a big game hunter is funding... I mean, maybe a big game hunter is just a side note to what he did for the rest of his life. But I do have this idea. He's like, go on, lads, see if there's anything worth... um." Yeah, worth worth culling while we're there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was claimed Bradley Land was a large formation with two large masses with a break, a straight, or an indentation between them. Cook included two photographs of Bradley Land with the description, the lower coast resembled Heidberg Island with mountains and high valleys. The upper coast I estimated as being about 1,000 feet high, flat and covered with a thin sheet of ice. So that sounded exciting. That does. The news shot around the world and he arrived in Copenhagen to a hero's welcome with the packed audience of his first lecture, including members of the Danish royal family. Then came a peculiar twist. Just five days later, a furious Robert Peary telegrammed from Labrador. Not, oh, <laughs> There's a dog theme here, isn't there? <laughs> claiming that he had, in fact, been the first person to reach the North Pole on the 6th of April, 1909. Right. Peary denounced Cook as a liar and quoted testimony from the two Inuit that Cook had never even left the mainland. They followed oh. the Cook-Peary controversy, which I had not heard of either. It's fascinating. A public debate as to who was the first to have reached the North Pole 
and it lasted for years. And you know what? It has never been fully resolved. Cook's case had not been helped, <laughs> this is great, by the fact that there is nothing that resembles Bradley Land in the location Cook described. Then came further mutterings over Cook's reliability. The photographs he had provided as proof of his visit to the North Pole were found to be cropped pictures of Alaska that he had taken years before. He was never able to produce his original navigational records to the Pole, and the diary of the expedition he provided to Danish experts for examination had clearly been written much later. <laughs> Quick, oh no, hang on. I've got to write a diary. Day 14. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I assume the dogs were saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the dogs are silent on the batter. So hold on, so let me recap here. So the implication is he never left the mainland, he didn't go traipsing into the North Pole, but not only did he claim that he was the first person to reach the North Pole. He also claimed on the way he discovered an undiscovered island and described and um, and named it Bradley Island. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was kind of his um yeah, I've been there and I found a new a new thing. Wow. You know, a new island. Because it was the it was the big it was the big thing. No one knew what was there and you'd right. be lauded, yeah, yeah. you know, just for seeing a new island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get all the wealth. Um, the American public turned against him and he had to bring out a disguise. So he went to a lecture in London in 1910. He wore a heavy disguise so no one would knew it was him wow. because he was so, he'd become so disgraced. But he still maintained to his dying day that it was true. Wow. Um, and we still don't know who was the first person, as I say. We still aren't sure. But it does seem like with his reputation in tatters, it's probably unlikely he was either misguided misinformed or a liar and um and i'm assuming there is no bradley island or anything of no 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 there's no bradley island it reminds me a bit i can't remember the uh name of the story but there is there is a movie about it uh, about the guy who entered the round the world uh solo yacht race have you ever seen that story no it's really fascinating. I mean, nothing paranormal about it, but it, he was this kind of eccentric um, inventor and he'd created this boat and he'd invested all his money in it, remortgaged his house and entered the race. And he, I think he, the boat just packed up whatever goes wrong with the boat uh, about a quarter or third of the way into the race. Uh, and he didn't know what to do. He was just so embarrassed. So he stayed put where he was and waited for everyone to come back round the globe and then rejoin the race to come back. And he thought, well, if I come, I think it, I think I'll get this right. He thought if I come third, there won't be much attention or scrutiny. I'll get a little bit of money, which will kind of recover, you know, stop me from being financially ruined, but it won't, you know, be too fussy. Um, and I think in the end there were some mishaps and he ended up coming in first, so all the scrutiny was on him. So, yeah. But he's, I think... Did he, did he, so he got found out and disgraced? I got, yeah, I, I, I think, did he go back to sea and then... I, I may be getting two stories confused, but I think he went back to sea and he, the, the belief is he then committed suicide because of the shame and stuff. But his motivation wasn't for the fame and whatever he was trying to avoid that in you know by coming in third or whatever his was purely 
kind of bruised ego, embarrassment, and the fact that he was financially ruined. But I, I don't think he could live with what he'd done afterwards. So it's slightly different. But I, well, I guess what I'm saying is motivations can be varied. This guy may have set out with the best intentions and then thought it's going to be so embarrassing I'm going to be a laughing stock I better make something up but he seems to have thrown the kitchen sink at it I went to the North Pole I discovered an island and I've just invented perpetual motion <laughs> I yeah I mean I guess the 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 sort of the the uh, moral of the tale is if you go exploring or go to sea just don't lie yeah yeah it reminds me of the Blackadder episode where he goes with Tom Baker to discover a new land right. and just ends ends up going to Calais. Um, yeah. But th- to continue the journey through the book, there's another one, and this kind of... Um, this isn't really about deceit, but it's about... So the ancient Greeks called this particular land Cassiterides, Cassiterides, Cassiterides. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, and nor does Google. Cassiterides, I'm going to call it, or the Tin Islands, which is much easier to pronounce. I'll go with the Tin Islands. And it's a mysterious source of their tin and lead because the metal trade was dominated by the Phoenicians at the time. So they didn't really know where the tin was coming from. I had no idea about this. Yeah. And um, Herodotus, who was a contemporary commentator... He says that one of the islands is a desert, but the others are inhabited by men in black cloaks, reaching down to their feet and fastened on the chest, who walk with staves and resemble the Furies from tragic representations. I love this. Like everyone, everyone on this island does that. Everyone. <laughs> everyone. The, these islanders live off their cattle and for the most part lead a wandering life. Of the metals they have, tin and lead, with with which with the skins they barter with some of the merchants for earthenware, salt and brazen vessels. What a brazen vessels. I yeah, a brazen vessel, not a shy one. Yeah. I think a brazen vessel is um uh that's just um something that is fired, isn't it? I don't know. I think that's what that right, means. Okay. I think that's what it means. Um and there's been loads of theories about where these are. And of course, as you can imagine the greatest um, contender for where they really were is Cornwall. Wow. Because okay. Cornwall obviously is known for its tin. And we covered that with the Tommyknockers. Yeah. Because, you know, they're the, they're the people that live down in the mines with them. And those, those, that description does sound a bit druid-like, doesn't it? It does sound a bit druid-like. Although I do like the idea that just one of the islands inhabited by men in black cloaks, no women... Um, in their black cloaks, just the, just the men, or, or or a bad goth metal band. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> goth metal band. That's right. Um, so other people or other suggestions from scholars were perhaps it was the Scilly Islands, or perhaps just the British Isles as a whole, right. or maybe even Spain. But there's a popular map which depicts the British Isles at the time of the Roman Empire. And it makes a rare inclusion of the Tin Islands. And they're located slightly um, around where the Scilly Isles Isles are, which basically sort of implies that it was the Scilly Isles that they were talking about. But then um, there's an author later called uh, Roger Dion who wrote a book all about this, it's claimed. 
Uh, I say it's claimed. I think that's true. I say the author of this book is talking about that. And um, he put, postulates that there was a group of islands off France's west coast um, just beyond the Bay of Biscay before it silted up. And um, it could be that there were some islands here which were involved in the tin trade. And evidence does point to there were um, around 10 islands in the sea um, just um, basically, you don't need to know exactly where. It's basically just off France's coast. So, um, so sea levels, whatever, they, they don't exist anymore, but they did exist. Yeah, is they that, did exist then. The and it is possible that that's where it could have been. Right. But having had a look around it, and I've, I've just looked at some other accounts, nobody really knows, but it is suggested that probably Cornwall is the right. most likely. It probably is. Yeah, you're, you're kind of disappearing islands. I just had this vision of, you know, those weird guys in their black robes just waving. Going, help, help, get me out of here. Look at them so wise. They're there they are doing their ancient signs <laughs> to being, their gods. Being weighed down by their tin and lead. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that could have been uh, England. Yeah. Um, Demon Islands. Have you come across the no, Demon they, Islands? They, they sound interesting. Place rumoured to be home, as you would imagine, to evil spirits and terrible creatures oh. that viciously attack those foolish enough to enter its waters or tread its soil. Brilliant. Strange noises were said to emanate. Um, there was all sorts of legends about maidens being sacrificed. It was all... Um, sort of terribly Game of Thrones-like, basically. does sound very Game of Thrones, doesn't it? The author points or, out... Or Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, it is very Lord of the Rings, yeah. yeah. Um, so the author contains uh, a reference to a book... Um, uh, uh, sorry, a reference to a map from 1508, and it shows two insulae demonium near the centre... Um, with, it's basically a passage between Labrador and Greenland... Um, wow. Don't Google Labrador Passage. So, um, so this is our second reference to Labrador. It is, yeah. And Greenland. Wow. Yeah. And the theory for why it is put there is that it's a passage that was feared by Norsemen, probably because of the maelstroms, which is a very specific sort of sea yeah. conditions, which are very dangerous. Yeah. And this is like the author doesn't sort of go down this route but when we start talking about sea monsters it's some of these things a little bit like the ghost stories that we tell about you know jenny green sleeves and well jenny green teeth rather they are they're put there as warnings so because i guess and and also in terms of islands and and land masses appearing and disappearing you've also got a lot of kind of ice flows and huge icebergs as well which may which a would provide danger for mariners, but also could, to the unfamiliar eye, maybe look like moving land masses. Maybe, yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Well, you know, there's a later map which puts it as just a single island in 1544, and it shifts it nearer to the eastern front of um, Labrador. But of course, not, none of it's true, um, right. and it is either. As you say, I hadn't really thought about that, but yes, it could be um, floating ice sheets, or it's just this level of the legend yeah. to it, it. it. It's it's reminding me of 
and I don't even know if it's if it's legend or genuine, but I'm thinking about those maps with you know massive serpents on and it, it's like demons lie here so don't go it that's the kind of jenny green teeth cautionary tale that you're talking about yeah, yeah. stick it on a map say there's demons there and at least make people wary of traveling there because it is dangerous yeah it's like a metaphor yeah 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 totally totally <laughs> so here's another one that i had heard of and it still appears on well, I've seen it on a lot of different maps, and that is High Brazil. Yes, we've covered this briefly before, I think. Yeah, um, spelt with an H-Y at the beginning, and then you could spell Brazil how you like it, really, because it seems to have um, various different ways of spelling it. But it has nothing to do with Brazil. This is where I discovered it. It's yeah. nothing to do with Brazil. It has to do with... Um, it, perhaps an Irish tribe called Ui Brazil. Right. Um, although nobody quite knows. But it, yeah, as I say, nothing to do with the Brazil wood tree of Brazil's name. But it's an imaginary island in the North Atlantic, usually located off the coast of Ireland. But sometimes it's as far south as the Azores. So it's kind of... It's, it's a movable de- feast. It's a movable feast. And it's usually depicted as a circular land which runs a strait or a river through it. Yeah. Um, bit like Australia. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. And it bears similarities to the myth of Atlantis because it has um, supposedly a wondrous paradise offering eternal happiness and immortality to its inhabitants. And apparently the kingdom uh, was ruled over by King Brazil, the high king of the world, who emerged from the depths of the Atlantic every seven years when the king would hold court for a short period and then the entire island would disappear back under the water. So, (laughs) With his high priest, Bradley Walsh. (laughs) Yes. No, Bradley Walsh just presents this feature for television when this happens. But um, High Brazil is caught up in lots of different alien theories as well. And uh, he doesn't go into this in the book, but this idea of surfacing from the ocean, there's some creatures there, eternal happiness and blah-de-blah, and then that area of the sea, that sort of bit between... Ireland and the Azores. It is known for its USOs. Some people say there's an alien base there. Um, It's kind of full of legend, and you do wonder whether, you know, some people saw some lights, they start talking. You you can't, you know, there might be a paranormal explanation for why people believe this island to be there. Um, And maybe it's the Irish connection, but it's... uh... It's almost reminded me of fairy folklore, but on a much grander scale. Yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of, you know, that that amazing place where everything is fantastical and then it's gone, you know what I mean? That's That reminds me of kind of fairy encounters and fairy parties and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, this this the first time this is drawn onto a map, around about 1325... And it exists all the way through to the 19th century again. Right. And there are some people today, I mean, I say some people, maybe a few YouTubers who persist in saying that it's there. 
And, and some of the, I don't know if that one particularly, but there's there's supposed to be the one off the coast of New Zealand and Australia, isn't there, that often get tied in with Mandela theory and are seen on globes. Oh, and yeah, maps. that's yeah. right, yes. I can't remember the name of the one that's near New Zealand, but I know somebody went out to look for it and couldn't find it. But it, there is, I think there's some footage of a globe that has this massive island on it and that's used as yes that's proof the mandela theory but it's it was the first thing i thought about when you started this episode that you know that that mandela theory affects and things written in books which was how the mandela effect started you know it shows that people do pass off things as fiction that are as facts, sorry, that are no, fiction, fiction. Yeah, yeah. for do. various reasons. I think your A to Z starting was really interesting. It could be for copyright reasons, right through to bruised ego of going to the North Pole to just legend and myth. Yeah, yeah. Or just um, completely mistaking something for something it isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, as as we see there, hiding their trading source. So yeah. keeping their source of tin secret for fear yeah. that someone else would get there and then they're left with it. But one of the most intriguing things, we'll, we'll leave the, the map bit there, but um, the book does talk about some of the sea creatures uh, that are reported. And some of these are completely <laughs> insane. Go on. My favourites are the duck tree. <laughs> the duck tree. So this is the plant. This is ducks a creature. being hatched from the fruit of trees. Oh, love it. This is like Cryptid Corner for us. In the yeah. Podcast. Welcome to Cryptid Corner. We, so we start with the duck tree. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is the duck tree. Actually, it sounds like a really fancy yeah. Chinese restaurant somewhere in the Cotswolds. It's a duck tree. <laughs> um, can I get you a hors d'oeuvre, sir? <laughs> um, no, this was to explain... The breeding of ducks, nobody could quite understand how ducks bred because they're migratory. Right. And so people didn't understand where they were coming from. So um, sailors and explorers started to see baby ducks in different parts of the world that they hadn't seen in their part of the world where they'd seen the adult ducks. So, of course, there's a duck tree. And then other people... Take it down. There's a guy. There's a Scottish historian who says with absolute factual <laughs> clarity that ducks breed of a certain fruit falling into the sea, and these shortly after get wings and fly to the tame or wild ducks. And and this is where this is where you get the term barnacle geese uh, from, okay. because some people used to believe that barnacles were the basically the eggs of barnacle geese. Right, right. But um somebody else goes, No, 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 barnacle geese, they come from uh, they come from these duck trees as well. Take take him to a local farm shop, you'd blow his bloody mind, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> there's um there's there's one uh there's another this is a historian Gerald of Wales, who wrote in the 12th century, I have myself seen many times with my own eyes more than a thousand minute corpuscles of this kind of bird hanging to one log on the shore of the sea, enclosed in shells and already formed. I mean, you didn't, mate. You, you did. definitely didn't. Making that up. <laughs> of course. 
Um, I, I spotted this on my way back from the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> he, he goes on then to say, Wherefore, in certain parts of Ireland, bishops and religious men in times of fast are used to eat these birds as not flesh nor being born of the flesh. So basically, that's quite racist. Oh, yeah, if, you, if you're on a fast, you could definitely eat yeah. these half formed duck things which don't exist just a lie it's just a lie but i love the idea that you can plant um a duck tree oh you'd want to see them hatch wouldn't you you definitely want to see them hatch so with that yeah like you said so these these are in areas but that doesn't sound like an area that wouldn't have eggs where where's that last person from do we know their location uh yeah that last person was from uh wales yeah so i mean yeah, but he's, uh, he's Wales is a, you know they have eggs surely. <laughs> well, yeah, but for some reason, I guess it's these migratory ducks. I mean, right, people right. are keeping right. So it, it's it's species that don't hatch in the UK. Yeah, that that's their way of explaining it. I guess. Well, we didn't know for years yeah. about how eels bred. Eels yeah. only breed in the Sargasso Sea. Right. So, similar but, with um, hoverflies that I. The hoverflies migrate, which they've only Dude, found hey. out quite recently. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, but I still find it kind of extraordinary that you can keep geese on a farm and go, "Yep, yeah, that's a lady geese. That's a man goose. They'll lay an egg. I'll get another goose." And they're like, "These geese over here, no, they must come off a tree. What? Must come off a tree? Yeah. But well, no, we've never seen them lay an egg." Uh, yeah, very bizarre. And they, but they, you must have to weave in some kind of legend that they only survive at certain times of the year. Do you know what I mean? And have a short lifespan. You could see all that kind of working, couldn't you? To explain why they suddenly disappear when they migrate somewhere. Yeah, that's true. That's if, true. If only they'd seen them flying off. <laughs> <laughs> Life would have been very different. I suppose if you, you know, if you're in the mindset where. I mean, to be honest, I still am blown away that butterflies yeah. are caterpillars, then pupae, yeah. then ca- then butterflies. Maybe they just went, oh, it's the well, same. And actually, back in a time when travel across the sea was, you know, at best, extremely difficult, almost impossible. You know, they the idea that a bird would be able to navigate across the sea would be, you know, even more fantastical than it is today. You know, it still blows you away that a bird that is here has migrated one way or the other thousands and thousands of miles. It, back in a time when you travelling to a few miles down the road took forever, <laughs> the thought that a bird could travel across large oceans must have been fantastical, right? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely, completely agree. There's another one that I'd never heard of here, the rockus. Ever ever heard of that? No, no. let's make a rockus. Seems to have first been reported around the 1200s. It's a helpful creature that carries men to the shore if they're marooned or, um, you know, abandoned at sea or their ship has sunk. Right. Although, if they suspect that that person has ever dined on dolphin flesh, they will just eat him. Right. Otherwise, they're kind. Yeah. They are either like a shark or a skate, but infinitely bigger. And um, when it appears, it's like an island. 
And with its fins, it overturns boats and ships, so not that kindly, but it's huge, basically. So wow. you can um, you can get on board a rockus, and, and if you're lucky, a rockus will prevent you from being eaten by a sea monster. It's handy. But they, they sound like they're a bit twitchy. Sometimes they could capsize your boat. Sometimes they could save you. Well, I just wonder where they draw the line. Like, yeah. dolphin flesh. Our mates are dolphins. Yeah, don't eat them. Have you eaten them? No. All right, get on. Get on. on. What about a cod? (laughs) I have eaten a cod. Right. That's actually fine because we ate cod too. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I wonder if this, because there are, you know, we've covered it uh, on the podcast before, those stories of sea creatures saving humans like like dolphins or or sea lions saving humans from shark attack or dragging them to the shore or keeping their head above the water so they can breathe you could see how those myths of this type of creature could take hold oh yeah absolutely and and the um the misidentification sometimes i think you know these these are tales these are cautionary tales and sometimes they're misidentification the sea pig um, described in 1537 is almost certainly a walrus by the sounds right, of it. Right. Um, but uh, as you can imagine, they do like to dramatise up the description. A monster in every part of it, a hog's head, uh, a head like the moon, hinder part of it, low there, like a dragon, two eyes, forked tail. It's a walrus, mate. It's yeah, a walrus. And uh, calling it a sea pig isn't actually that terrifying yeah. and very similarly you've got um the sea unicorn which we now know narwhal and narwhal exactly which does exist um the sea rhinoceros um Ooh, I, I i like uh, i like that and i like the very specific nature uh, of it so a sea so a sea rhinoceros not particularly scary but it devours lobsters which are 12 feet long wow <laughs> well foot lobster yeah yeah that's very I, I specific i don't know if that's terrifying or a huge opportunity <laughs> think of the garlic <laughs> butter I know. but these these You're are not gonna have a bowl big enough though no no these and other descriptions like as you can imagine you know your traditional sea monsters are all are all on there yeah. your sea worms these all come from explorers just coming back and going Oh, I had a terrible time. I had to fight off a sea pig. Yeah. And everyone goes, oh, a sea pig. No. And then there's people in the Shetland Islands going, do you, do you mean a seal? Yeah. You know? yeah. um, but, but, you know, it, I think we, again, we said in uh, an episode we did of, uh, last year that you still today get things mainly that wash up on beaches where everybody goes crazy and goes it's a sea monster but it turns out to be a, a rotting whale or whatever so we do you know, yeah. there's so much of the sea and the deep that's unexplored and unknown and alien to us that you know that these kind of sightings of weird creatures still go on today it's nothing new really nothing old really no no absolutely not no and people people scour um, Google Maps and Google Earth, looking for these things, not fully understanding how digital artifacts work. Yeah. But they will pull out sea creatures and stuff like that. But before we leave um, this whole subject, 
obviously there isn't a map of it, but I just wanted to give an honourable mention to Brigadoon because any time anybody oh. talks about mythical places, yeah, I love Brigadoon. Talking of romantical places that appear, yeah, um, it's it's allegedly it's a it's um, a Scottish village, allegedly um, put under a magic spell and put in a time warp and hasn't appeared since 1754. And it was done that to protect it from advancing English redcoats during the Jacobite Rebellion. So there is a political reason for Brigadoon. It is a way of saying Scotland will survive. There is this village. It will rise again. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, it was only when I I looked at it, I realised what Brigadoon means. And uh, uh, I sort of feel stupid for not realising it means the old bridge of Dune, which is real. Yeah. It's a late medieval bridge in Ayrshire in Scotland, so you can... You can visit Brigadoon. You can visit Brigadoon, which is very satisfying. I would love to do that. But I love how... Don't wear a red coat. No, <laughs> no. But it's another example of, A, something I did have a look that is a Scooby-Doo plot which involves Brigadoon. Oh, really? Which is beautiful, ah. yes. Um, as you would as you would imagine, and it reminds me as well of um, you'll see some YouTube clips of um, quite a lot of them are from China. People who see cities in the sky, yes, yeah, which is largely a weather phenomena, really. Yeah, um, that's what it's about. Like those floating boats that you see as well. The it's similar to boats. that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, the mirage. But um, but Brigadoon is such a a romantic thing. And its reason for existing is clear. It's a it's a right. it's a cultural thing, and so what we can sort of conclude in today's lecture is <laughs> that um, lots of people say lots of things for lots of different reasons, yeah. and people commit them to either cartography or just to you know Brigadoon isn't that slightly different, yeah. but they present them as fact. And when we talk about the paranormal. And some of this is kind of it's in the it's in that middle point between humans just lying, getting it wrong, and a bit of paranormal. But it, this applies to everything. There's a re- if there is a reason for someone saying something and they've said it, um, perhaps check out the the logic and the truth of it before believing it. But it's very satisfying to um, have a look at some of these things and. Yeah. Y- y- isn't it crazy that in the 1700s they wouldn't have believed that any one of us on a device in our pocket could just open up Google Maps and, and see, go, yeah. yeah, that doesn't exist, mate, sorry. <laughs> but uh, it's, um, it's also reminded me a bit of one of my favourite episodes of The West Wing. Do you ever watch The West Wing? I did, but I don't know which there, one. There's this great episode, I think it's called The Big Cheese, where they uh, they get they meet all these kind of... Uh, more extreme, crazy ideas get pitched to people at the West Wing. And one of them was relating to maps. And there was a thing about, which is true, that many maps distort the size of countries and continents. Oh, yeah. So, or uh, you know, on many Western maps, somewhere like Africa will be smaller than it is and somewhere like America will be drawn bigger than it is. And then there was this whole thing about creating maps where the southern hemisphere should be on the top and the northern hemisphere should be on the bottom and everybody in the episode goes, well, that's just completely ridiculous. But actually, when you think about it, why is it ridiculous? <laughs> you know, it's you could have a, a map where 
Australia, you know, is nearer the top and the UK and Greenland is nearer the bottom. It's it's politics in a way that kind of defines a lot of map making and this kind of ties into some of that as well, I think. Yeah, that's true. It really is true. And of course, in most of the maps we have in British schools, Britain is absolutely huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Compared to compared to, to Europe, I should say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so and I and I think you're right, and I think you're right to uh highlight the developments of Google Maps and social media and the internet because you can see when those things didn't exist that a map and something that detailed and hard on print and often coloured uh not just a black and white image had so much power and mm. and and authenticity and weight yeah absolutely yeah because there's no there's no other reference point yeah yeah and um people are beginning to you know more sophisticated in international development they want to find new things there's money wealth and power to be had from it yeah so um and you've got to start somewhere and yeah. then you know i suppose when we go back to it that is what that episode of blackadder is parodying yeah 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 definitely definitely well that was fascinating really enjoyed that episode well thank you so that is the phantom atlas the greatest myths lies and blunders on maps uh published november 2016 simon and schuster edward brooke hitching uh it's well worth a purchase it's a beautiful book for only 25 quid oh i'll definitely i'll definitely check that out well we'll be back next week from our studio under the ocean in atlantis yes um and uh your dog's been very quiet this week. I know, this is the first us, time yeah. I think the dog has lasted a whole episode without boring to get out. Maybe that says something about the episode, that it's been a good he's, one. He's interested in maps. I can yeah, see he's yeah. very much of that, that nature, yes. Yeah. Well, he's a big fan of the Labrador Islands. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine that fellow dragging a sleigh to the North Pole? Yeah, yeah. No, he couldn't drag... He couldn't drag... He'd be asleep half the time. Well, um... Yep, New Year. Really glad to uh, have you all listening and really good to get back into the flow of it. That was a great episode. If you can, We always say at this point, if you continue uh, to like, subscribe, recommend us to a friend uh, and review. We had another review, really nice review recently. Um, uh, another couple of reviews recently that were really good. So thank you all of those out there who are doing that. And... We will see you next week on the Bless Your Souls. Yes. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Are you the quantum mechanics?